Well, good evening. Uh, like I said earlier, if you were not here for this, uh, Sean and Sarah are on their way to MD Anderson this week, so please keep them in your prayers. We'll be taking a, a short one-week break from uh, the Being Human series that Sean is doing on Sunday evenings this, this semester. Uh, tonight, we're going to be we're going to be looking at a, a short parable of Jesus. It's, it's likely a very familiar passage to many of you. It's, it's quite short, though. Uh, but it, it, we're, gonna, we're hopefully going to see that the kingdom of God, it has massive value, massive importance for the people of God. That, that if we're wise, that we'll give up all that we have in order to attain it. We'll stop anything that might hinder us from grasping at this kingdom. And so tonight we're going to be in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. If you'd like to turn there, uh, before we read our passage, let's go about praying, asking God to, to give us wisdom for these words. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, well, Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us that you have called us to come and to worship you, to, to hear your word and respond. And so we're here. Lord, we've come with, with humble hearts, with open hands, longing to receive whatever it is that you have for us. Lord, would you speak your words? Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you open our eyes and our ears? Let us see Jesus tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the past few years, one of uh, my favorite shows on Netflix has to be the depiction of the royal family through the show The Crown. Uh, the, the production, everything about it, it, it really keeps value throughout the whole series. But uh, by far, probably one of the most intriguing characters to me in that show is Prince Philip. Prince Philip, the, the husband of, of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, if you don't know, he's, he's actually from a royal family himself. And one of the striking things about his role within the royal family, I didn't realize this until watching the show, is that he has no claim to the royal throne. That there's not a chance of any, of any type that he would, he would sit on that throne. And throughout the series, it's quite interesting that as he starts to see his ambitions, the, the things that he always hoped for, his dreams, as he starts to see those fade away Behind this throne, behind this crown, if you will, he starts to become depressed. He starts to think, what, what are the things that I've actually accomplished in life? He becomes uh, disillusioned with religion. He starts to wonder, what, what, is, what is the purpose of life? And he's wondering all of this in one particular episode in 1969 as the Apollo 11 moon landing is going on and the entire Western world is captivated by this achievement of these men that have, that have done something. They went somewhere. They, they did something. And as the astronauts go about their, their tour of the Western world celebrating their achievement, Prince Philip 
is uh, desperate to ensure that he's able to get some time with them. And so when they come to England, come to Buckingham Palace, he gets 10 minutes with these astronauts. And he's longing, he's hoping to find something. He's infatuated with their success. And he sits down with them to ask them about their success, right? Hoping to get some semblance of, of that in his life, some insight, maybe some perspective. He finds himself dumbstruck with the astronauts by how poorly they can hold a, a conversation. Their ability to small talk is disastrous. He finds himself dumbstruck that these men that he had set up as gods in his mind, they, they came into his home and they all had colds. They were all sick. And I wonder, do you ever feel that way about your hopes and dreams, the idols in your life, the things that you've set up? Did that feeling of, of finally getting the thing that you had hoped for, the thing that you had longed for, you finally got it and it was lacking? It didn't quite satisfy that longing that you had. I think often when we get what we want, right, the joy, it doesn't last. The honeymoon eventually ends and life just goes on and we got to find something else to look for. Some other thing to give us hope. And so tonight what we're going to see is Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God is a treasure that when viewed rightly can give us lasting joy. And so we're going to see that in three quick points. We're going to see the treasure of this kingdom. We're going to see the cost of this kingdom. And we're going to see the assurance of the kingdom of God. All right, so first, the treasure in this parable. If you look again at your passage, this is a very short passage. It basically tells the same story twice. In the first story, right, there's a man in a field who, who discovers a hidden treasure. He's likely wandering through the field. He, he might have worked in the field. We're really not given many details about what goes into his backstory, but we know that he comes across a treasure, and that upon finding it, it is of such immense value that he sells everything he has in order to obtain it. Now, this sounds somewhat strange to us, but in days before banks, in a war-torn country like Israel, this would have been really common. You would bury your, your valuables in order to keep them secure. But likely, even some of you, maybe you have parents or grandparents, right, that lived through the, the Depression. They never would trust a bank again. And so what would they do? They'd, they'd put their money under their mattress. They'd hide it away somewhere. But the point of the treasure being buried is, is irrelevant to the fact that he finds it and he does everything he can to attain it. The second passage is, is quite similar, right? But instead of an accidental discovery, what do we find? This is a merchant. He's searching for this pearl. He's looking for it. And then when he finds it, he's overcome with joy. He does everything he can to get it. What makes this kingdom so valuable? What makes it so worthy of this purchase? Think about kingdoms today or, or countries around the world. What is it that we, uh, that we how, how do we go about deciding the greatest countries in the world? Is it their wealth? Is it their population? Maybe their history? Maybe their, their start, was it moral, was it not? Perhaps it's the natural resources they have, their military might. These are the ways that we judge the kingdoms of the world, but not this kingdom. What makes this kingdom so valuable? It's its king. It's Jesus, the, the one of immeasurable worth. 
the Alpha, the Omega, he is what brings value to this kingdom. Do you see it? Or better yet, do you, do you see him as a treasure? The Washington Post, years ago, they, they did an experiment where they had Joshua Bell, a, a world-famous violinist, come and play in a busy New York City subway. And they were wondering, would people notice greatness? Would they see it if they were right in front of it? And so he goes and he plays, and, and three minutes go by before anyone stops. Sixty-three people pass by before anyone leans against the wall and notices there's something different about this music I'm hearing right now. A half a minute later, Bell gets his, his first donation and somebody gives him a dollar. And after a long day of playing music in a busy subway, over a thousand people pass by and he earns $32. And rarely did anyone stop and notice greatness right in front of him. These men in our passage, they, they saw the treasure for what it was, and they knew it. And they did everything they could to obtain it. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God has infinite value, has infinite worth, worth that is, that is wrapped up in the fact that, that he is the king. Do you see it? Do you see him as the king? Do you see the treasure? Or better yet, where is the treasure of your heart tonight? Right, Jesus tells us that, that where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where is your treasure tonight? Is it, is it found in your success? Your financial success? Your, your success in your workplace? Is it, is it found in your family or your relationships? Where, where is your treasure? Is it your happiness? What do you look to to bring you joy? This parable asks us this question, do we see the kingdom of God? Do we see the king as a treasure? But second, this parable asks us, do we rightly value the cost of the kingdom? Do we, do we place the, the cost of this kingdom within the hierarchy of our lives in a correct way? We see in this parable, uh, by the response of both the man and the merchant, that they realized there was a cost of the value they were getting, and they went out and they did everything they could to obtain this. They sell all that they own. They do everything they can to get it. Now certainly by cost, Jesus certainly doesn't mean that, that you need to pay to enter into the kingdom of God. We know, right, that, that, that this kingdom, coming to Jesus, you come without money. You come without price. There's no purchase of this salvation. But this cost means something within this, this parable. And it seems to me that, that it refers to to both the immeasurable value of Jesus as well as the ability to, to sacrifice all in order to obtain it. The immeasurable value of Jesus as well as the sacrifice of all other things in order to get it. To many of us, this is one of those passages of Jesus that, that if we're honest, it's frightening, isn't it? Surely the, these men, they didn't, they didn't sell everything they owned. Like, surely they, they talked to their family first. They made sure that, you know, their parents were okay with it. Surely they didn't sell everything. They didn't give up everything for this. Tim Keller, in his book, The, the Reason for God, he, he describes a, a conversation with a young lady who had never heard the gospel before. And certainly she had been in and out of churches before. She had heard a moralistic gospel where God might accept her if she did enough things right, but she had never heard a free grace of Jesus. 
But upon hearing it, she described this message as, as frightening. Here's why. This is what she says. She says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing that he cannot ask of me. And that's frightening. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that if we're to follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Right? It's, it, it's a call to, to come and die if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. A daily dying to yourself. Of saying no to the things of this world, the desires of your heart, the things that you think might bring you happiness. Why? Because you're following Jesus. Often, though, I think that we struggle with this cost. We, we think that we can have Jesus and, and we can just continue on in our ways. We, we think that maybe we can get a Black Friday deal on Jesus, right? We can get him at discount rate where nothing has to change in our lives and we can, we can just continue on going about as we do. That our lives don't have to look any different. Many of you are Wednesday nights, you're reading the cost of discipleship, right? And, and this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer termed cheap grace. This is how he describes it. He says, cheap grace means grace is bargain basement goods, cut-rate forgiveness, cut-rate comfort, cut-rate sacrament. It's grace that we give to ourselves. It's grace that allows us to continue on in our lives unchanged. Grace that allows us to avoid Jesus and his call to leave all, to sell all, to follow him, even unto death, daily denying ourselves. Cheap grace, this grace that has no cost, it lets you continue on in sin. It, it tells you that, that gaining Christ is not going to affect your life in, in any meaningful way. You can keep going about the way that you were before. Nothing has to change. Simply another item to place in your heart. Another, another treasure to put there. Another section on your resume. But costly grace. Costly grace. This is the grace that these men knew. This is the grace that, that brings you to Jesus. It might cost you your life, but it, it's grace because it brings you to Jesus whereby you can truly and finally live. It might cost you denying yourself daily, but it's grace because you get Jesus, the treasure of this kingdom. It's costly. He's telling us something important, that those, those longings that you have, that I have, daily longings, we can find real lasting satisfaction for those longings in his kingdom. Real and lasting joy. Do you know costly grace? I think for many of us, the, this idea of cheap grace, it's something that is quite invasive in our culture. Something that's quite invasive in our hearts that, that we go about doing often and not realizing it. We, we think we can get deals on Jesus. That we can continue on as we will. Cheap grace, it, it tells us that it, it's okay to break your marriage vows, that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage because God's going to forgive you, so just continue on as you were. It tells you the, the bottom of the bottle is fine. It doesn't matter. 
Just continue on. Have another. Cheap grace tells you that the cheating on your finances, it's, it's okay. That your mercy and your generosity towards other people, it, it doesn't matter. You don't need to look like Jesus. You don't need to follow in his kingdom. It's grace that we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace tells us that we don't need to love our neighbors. That we don't need to sacrifice for them. And we see it, don't we? When, when Christianity, when it, when it doesn't change how you spend your money, when it doesn't change the, the generosity or, or the mercy that you have towards people, or, or when, when it doesn't change your private life, the, the media you consume, when it, doesn't, when it doesn't change the way that you go about loving your neighbors, whether, whether they're black or whether they're white, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, when it doesn't change that, you're dealing in cheap grace. Jesus comes with these short parables and he, he restructures the, the hierarchy of our lives and he says to put all things behind love of him, including our desires, including the things that we think might bring us fulfillment. But, but lastly... He also assures us of this kingdom. We find in this parable, right, the, the first man, he, he goes to the field, and what's so strange about it, he, purchase, he sells everything he has, and he purchases it with joy. With joy. He knows what he's getting. He feels assured of it. But as we just talked about, let's be honest, giving up all, selling all, denying ourselves, Doing that with joy sounds impossible. It just does. How do you go about doing it joyfully? I think some of us, it's not joy that motivates us to live in a sacrificial way. Somehow we, we get it twisted and we start to think that, that maybe how good I am at selling all and, and losing all, maybe that actually might make me valuable to Jesus. We think it might actually count towards our salvation in some way. And so we, we go about selling all, not because of joy, we're, we're motivated by pride, by our self-righteousness. Others were motivated thinking that perhaps by doing this, I, I can make up for the things that I've done wrong. Like, perhaps I know that I've done a lot of things wrong, and perhaps if I, if I sell all and I do all that now, maybe then, maybe then, God might take me. We're not motivated by joy, we're, we're motivated by guilt and thinking that there may be some way we can pay it back. Others, we, we don't find joy in, in selling all or denying ourselves. We're actually scared. We think if, if we don't do this, then I've got to deal with God. It's not joy that motivates you to sell all and to give away all. It, it becomes fear. How do we get joy? How do we joyfully go about sacrificially serving and giving away all things in order to advance this kingdom of God? How do we do that? And here it is. The assurance of this passage. What is it? It's found in Christ. It's found in the love of Christ. He brings you joy. He brings you assurance that, that all of this is worth it. You begin to see him as, as a priceless treasure. You begin to see Jesus with joy when you realize that in the eyes of him, you were that treasure. You were that pearl. 
You are that treasure whereby he sold everything he had in order to obtain you. You are that pearl whereby he sold all of his possessions so that he might gain you. He counted you worth it to take death and and sin, your shame, on his shoulders. Why? You are that treasure. You are that pearl for him whereby he was willing to lose all for you. He does it with joy, not pride. He doesn't do it for guilt. He doesn't do it for fear. He does it for joy. How do we know? Because the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12 too, he tells us that for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. What was that joy? What was the joy before Jesus as he's, as he's nailed to the cross? What is he thinking about? He's thinking about you. Your freedom from sin and tyranny and death. Your fellowship for all eternity. You are that joy that he's looking at. And as you ponder that love, as you, as you sit with that for a while, it's that love that changes your pride to joy. That motivates you past guilt and fear to, to joy, to, to sell all, to lose all, to deny yourself. Why? Because you get Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who's given all for you. As you ponder that love of him, that changes your motivations. It gives you real and lasting joy. I'll close with this. Um, Mary V and I, when we dated, and you can, you can make fun of us for this later, um, out of the you know, anxiety of dating now in college, parents, this is what uh, your kids stay up late at night thinking about, but we were extremely nervous about saying I love you to each other for way too long. And so instead of saying I love you, what we would do is we would say I like you. And we would really like emphasize like I, I really do like you. We're just not saying the L word yet, right? Um, and, you know, this went on for like a year. I know. We made it. Um, but, you know, I still to this day can, can remember the, the excitement, if you will, of, of saying I love you for the first time. But the reality is that Mary V didn't know me. Like, she had been on dozens of dates with me where I'm putting my best self forward. She's not seeing my selfishness, my self-righteousness. She's not seeing my pride or my anger. She didn't know me. It's quite different, isn't it? Years and years after, after seeing me at my worst, to say I love you. After, after seeing all the baggage, the skeletons in my, clo- my, my closet, it's quite different. It's not quite the same excitement, but it's quite more truthful and brings about certainly more joy and happiness to say, I love you now. Through all the ups and the downs of a relationship. Many of you know this. You have friends, right, that, that have seen you at your worst and they've been through the, the darkness that is parts of your life. They know the baggage of your family. They've sat with you through it. And it's strange, isn't it, that all of a sudden when you have friends that have done that, what do you naturally end up doing? You start saying, I love you. You get joyful about seeing them. Why? Because you're living out the reality of that relationship, what it really is. You're living out of that love, and it's bringing you to joy when you see them. How do you get this joy? The the foundation, the, the motivation, the assurance of this treasure is found only in knowing 
in experiencing his love for you. Jesus, the, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the bride or the, the, the groom of the church. His love for you. Selling all is worth it. So rest assured, be motivated to follow this king in his kingdom, even if that means you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even as that means you're having to sell all. Even as that means the ambitions you have in life, the desires of your heart, you're having to say no to. You're in the valley of the shadow of death, and it's worth it. Why? Because you get Jesus, the treasure of the kingdom. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are beyond good to us, your people. Father, we pray, Lord, that as we go into the world this week, that we might be embassies of your kingdom truth, that we might go about loving and serving others joyfully, giving away what's rightfully ours. Why? Because, because we get you. Father, I pray that we might realize this in Jesus' name. Amen.